0: We want everyone to be whole architects, see buildings built, get in the reps to sort of understand, you know, how how does a drawing set translate to a building and how do you then translate that back to the next drawing set? That takes time and it takes work and it takes projects. And so, you know, we say all the time that everyone, even though we do interior design, we do architecture, we do things that we would consider design work projects, design projects, we still want everyone to know how to be a whole architect. And so that takes time. And we want people to be around for as long as they would like to be around. But for us, that means continually bringing everyone new challenges. And we're very conscientious about our role in that process. We can't just sort of sit back and keep doing houses forever. We love the houses and we will do them forever, but it's not the only path. We have made a concerted effort to sort of remain in a growth mode, at least for now. Welcome to
1: a best practice a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Adam Ruffin. I'm gonna give a little bit of a brief bio on Adam, so it should be fun. Adam is a partner at an architecture firm where he manages the Brooklyn office, overseeing projects at the Corning Museum of Glass, the Museum of Ice Cream, which is a pretty dope project, uh, multifamily projects in Washington DC and Virginia, and private residences in Brooklyn, Manhattan, Montauk. He's a licensed architect in New York, state of Georgia and Washington, DC. And for 15 years worked at Thomas Pfeiffer and Partners in New York City. Well, he's one of the largest tenured members of the team there, managed and developed some of the firm's most important cultural and residential projects, including the Corning Museum of Glass, and the North Carolina Museum of Art in Raleigh. Legend has it, he's very was, was very instrumental in the culture of the company. So we might dive a little bit into that, which will be pretty cool. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Great to be here. I also wanna recognize Chris Morgan is here. He's gonna be co-hosting this with me. Now I like to pass it off to Chris because uh, Chris has been really pivotal in helping us structure a lot of the conversation here. So take it away, Chris.
2: Yeah. So Adam, I'm just gonna launch into starting to talk a little bit about the forming of your background at Thomas Pfeiffer. So I'm just gonna lead off with this question. What do you think explains Thomas Pfeiffer and Partners' remarkable design culture?
0: It really comes from Tom. He is a truly amazing architect. And, you know, he does it in in a variety of ways. He is not sort of, uh, he's not the red scarf and he's not the tyrant and he's not the, you know, dogged, you know, automaton, make it right. He, but he's amazing. And, you know, the, his, his vision and his ability to sort of combine elements and then refine, refine, refine is, you know, is not, is not easy to match. I don't think there are any better architects in New York City, maybe not in America in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, it's not just because of the work, you know, I, I, I'm very fond of him personally as well. He's a very nice person. And I think his, The way he sort of brings people into the office, the sort of you know soft nature of being there is really helpful to you know being good architects and being able to just do good work. Feel like you've got space to think and you know the ability to, uh, you know, kind of give some things some time and let things percolate. You know, he's he's a very kind of methodical thinker and drawer and and that. Spreads out, you know, everyone sees the way he works and the way he's in the studio kind of, you know, going over things. And he's always had an amazing team of, uh, you know, senior architects of director level people there who are the people that, you know, mentored me while I was there. People like Greg Reeves and Steve Dayton and Gabe Smith, who were themselves amazing people and amazing architects. And so, you know, Tom was good at bringing good people around him who also had a good level of talent and skill, uh, but were happy to share that. So a lot of the people that I was able to work with, you know, everyone showed up to do the work and it was really uh, an amazing studio from the time I was there until the time I
2: left. And it still is. What was it like when you first started versus when you left? Was there kind of a a big era shift that changed or did it sort of remain the same the whole time?
0: It definitely didn't remain the same. When I got there in 2003, it was... I think 12 or 13 people, I had been introduced to their work by a professor of mine um, named John Qualley at UVA who had worked uh, at, at Richard Meyer's office with a lot of these same people, with Tom and with Greg Reeves and with Steve Dayton. So he introduced me to the practice. At that point, they had been open six or seven years um, in earnest. And you know, had done a handful of really amazing houses. They kept winning record houses every single year type of thing and were moving up in scale. And so the, the group there was smaller when I started than when I left. And the scale of the work was definitely, you know, different. Tom, having come from Richard's office, had done a lot of really, you know, significant scale work and, you know, experienced something like what I'm experiencing now where you, you, you sort of start over in some ways um, in terms of scale. Get some things built, and then you're able to sort of move up. So, I would say the first few years, um, although I was hired to work on a really big project in North Carolina, not the museum, but a different project, that actually didn't get built. Then I worked on a couple other things. Then I did end up on the North Carolina Museum, and that's when the, the scale of the work really started to pump up. So, while I was there, Salt Lake City Courthouse, um, a huge building, North Carolina, which was big building, um, Corning Museum, Glenstone, uh, you know, up in a significant way, both in terms of the scale of work and in some cases, you know, the budget and the reach and the complexity. So there was a significant difference from when I started to when I left. And, you know, pre recession, we were up to, you know, 30, 30 people, lost uh, a decent amount of those folks uh, because of the recession. And I think when I left, we were 25 or 26 or so. So at any rate, had doubled from when I started. And I think they're about that
2: still today,
0: I've encountered recently.
2: Interesting. So it's it's interesting to hear about like venturing into that new scale, seeing that happen and leading design on that with a base of award-winning projects at a residential level. What did you pick up seeing the office venture into that new scale that you carry with you still in your current practice?
0: I mean, it's funny that, you know, you have to prove yourself over and over as an architect, as you sort of, you know, go through, and this has been my experience, you know, you start learning some things in school and you prove that you've learned them by, you know, getting through school and doing well. You then get a job and, you know, you're terrible at everything. And then you get through it and you figure out how to prove yourself again. And then you you sort of keep going back to, you know, the end of the line type of thing, but you're joining different lines. And so in my experience there, I remember, you know, getting not exactly chewed out, but, you know, getting some, some stern language from some of my, uh, my superiors about, you know, something just not being good enough. Like, or this just, it's not really there and we need to keep working at this. I'd certainly internalize that. And I internalized the care that, you know, everything had to be kind of squared away in my own mind and at my own desk before it left and went to anyone else. It's not enough to sort of do something in a, in a, Half good way, and then get someone else to mark it up. It's like, no, I need to. I need to believe that I've done everything, and obviously, I haven't. But that's what you sort of bring. And in my mind, whether you're doing that as a student on your first project, or you're doing it as a 20-year person on your you know, 20th project as an architect, it's still kind of the same thing. And so you're learning on a on a drawing level. You're learning at a building level. You're learning at an office level. Then you're learning at a bigger office level. So to me, it all—it all, it all it just keeps scaling up. It's the same issue over and over. So, learning how they did great design work on a small scale helped me figure out how to do great design work on a big scale. Obviously, we'd add more people to a team. There'd be more management structure. There would be more things to do to sort of guide the project. We, you know, on the technical side of just keeping track, you know, keeping good records and making sure we're we're sort of competent managers. Is it good? Are we paying attention to it? Are we redlining our own work? Are we satisfied that this is beautiful before it leaves our desk? And that is the same thing, just different scale. And I believe that now, you know, we did it at Tom's. I think I know something about that process. And I don't, I don't necessarily compare myself to Tom as an architect, but I learned that process there. and I can apply that process to anything and at least believe that we've done the best that we can do as the projects come into our office and hopefully leave them as, as buildings.
1: I would love to, to, maybe to provide some more context too, for our listeners is, you know, what to step back a little bit into like what currently architecture offices, cause I'm sure when I first mentioned it, for those that might not be aware, they might be like, wait, what's the name of the firm. Um, but if you can uh, kind of give us a, a little bit of a rundown of how's architecture firm currently structured. And cause I'm very curious to know a little bit about like, you know, from the process perspective, my understanding is they're three partners and you can dive into that a little bit, but you know, you're all bringing in different backgrounds. So like where, where does your influence come into the firm? At what level does it come into the firm? And, and, and how are you bringing some of those processes within that when other people also have varied experiences?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we are, we're three partners, Katie and Danny McNally live in Richmond, Virginia, and they manage that office, and I'm in Brooklyn managing this office. And we have been friends and collaborators since grad school when we were all at UBA um, in 2001 uh, and, and two. And so we, you know, had a working relationship. We worked on a lot of things together while we were there. So we kind of know internally that we work well together and have a, a, a shared design voice. Although we do different things well, and I think we um, are constantly getting better at combining our, our particular skills, you know, those guys are both real artists and have, you know, a legacy within their own family, um, separate families of, you know, amazing artists and amazing artwork and, you know, producing that work themselves. I have, you know, engineering and uh, an entrepreneurial background in my family, um, you know, two legacies at Georgia tech kind of thing where, you know, I, I, I think I, I bring a certain, version of that, of my family life and history to the, to the team as well. But we share all the design work. And so, you know, it's not, it's not them running a studio and me running a studio. It's all three of us running one studio and we happen to have separate offices. You know, my people here are working on stuff in Virginia and people in Virginia are working on projects in New York and that's normal. And we do, and and it's how it's been since the day we started. So, and we, you know, we try to commit to that, you know, we try to, we always make time for the design process to include all of our voices on every project. And that really is the way we wanted to set up so that there wasn't a siloing and there weren't like separate voices being developed as an office. There's one office voice that can, you know, that can develop and we, you know, we bring in other architects and obviously all of our team members are super talented and they come with their own perspectives but the whole thing is a is a is always a conversation. It's never a directive from a person to do a thing. And I think that's you know maybe that's a little bit of an interesting difference between at least you know the recognition of Tom Pfeiffer as you know Tom Pfeiffer, and maybe the recognition of us as a kind of anonymous collective of designers. There's a there's a bit of play there in in our name that speaks to that, but. You know, we, we hope that's real and we do mean
2: that that a, uh, a collaborative version of the way
0: we work is how we all work
2: best. Yeah, I was just going to talk about since the firm you you described before the call, like you're careful that it doesn't splinter into these two different offices and that all the partners oversee all the projects. What was it like sort of operating like a hybrid I think that's something that's going to happen, you know, as as people are moving back into the office into these hybrid ap- approaches, but still carrying some of the aspects of working online. It seems like you might have already been working that way for years.
0: Yeah. When we started, we didn't really have a lot of team built around us. So it was kind of us us guys drawing stuff and you know, literally emailing things back and forth. We quickly got on Dropbox, if you can tag those guys here. But we still don't have a server. We still we still operate completely on Dropbox. You know, that is how everything has worked. We have a person in Philadelphia who works with us. We have, you know, the team here. We have the team there. We were kind of pandemic-proof in that regard. Everyone was mobile. Everyone knew how to do that without much difficulty. Um, and we already spent a lot of time online in these various, you know, Zoom and meeting and Teams and all this other stuff. So that was really helpful. You know, there are other obvious things about the pandemic that make design culture difficult and it makes sort of our iterative process a little bit more difficult. But yeah, we were set up already um, as a really mobile, very nimble office, you know, almost placeless without that being, you know, corny.
1: To follow up on that, do you have a notable difference in your design or like, you know, the nature of these online tools has reconfigured, I think, design processes for people? Whether it's like, you know, when you started off at Thomas Pfeiffer, Pinterest wasn't around, right? Or like how to how to get inspirational images and how to like feed, how to like fine-tune your taste over time. Mm-hmm. And that's changed dramatically. I think now we, we're just inundated with images now. And so I'm curious, like, how would you how would you, aside from the remote side, what are the other ways in which like the firm itself creatively feels different too, because of like what you know, the the tools that are now available around you? To enact the work.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, there, I think there's a, a question down the road about, you know, BIM and collaborative drawing software and, you know, our use of Revit, which is important. But yeah, I mean, honestly, the fact that we've always been connected with every device to our network is a really big deal. I mean, when I started at Tom's, if someone left, you know, if I was traveling, not only did I probably not have a laptop, but if I did, I had to make this, you know, a bunch of, some special efforts to put stuff on a disk and get it on my computer and make sure I had you know, the work available to me if I wanted to do it while I was gone. We've never had to worry about that. We've never had to worry about so much of the cost associated with infrastructure. As a young office with not a lot of money, not having to pay $40,000 for a server and pay someone you know, $10,000 a year to maintain it is a really big deal. And so being committed to that structure has been great. It's all getting clawed back with the sort of subscription version of everything, but you know it sort of let us get off the ground in a really lightweight way, and so you know I think the design process we've all had to get very comfortable with, you know the laptop scale of visualization, the uh, kind of different version of combing drawings. You know I I I don't remember since the pandemic I don't think I've sat in front of a you know thirty six by forty eight sheet of anything. And so I actually, I recognize that as a potential pitfall, but it's just how, how we operate and how we sort of need to operate. So, you know, there, there are a bunch of costs saved. There are a bunch of kind of complexities saved by the current world. You know, we still suffer from the Pinterestization of everyone thinking they're a designer and, you know, and, the side of, of the work that becomes sort of annoying when it's been democratized too much. There's not the work being put in, there's just like a collection of images or, or a collection of ideas. You know, you still put in the work, you still know how to build buildings and you have to learn that by building buildings. So yeah, I think some stuff is exactly the same because you st- you know, you're still making things for people and building them, but the, the tool to get there is totally different. We are constantly trying to find those efficiencies within our own design process which is a bit how we you know, also stay financially viable and find them within our infrastructure, which is how we sort of try to stay financially viable on that side too. It is really hard to have a business um, doing architecture. And so where we can, if we can find some of those, um, some of those shortcuts or some of those, you know, efficiencies, we definitely find them and try to take advantage of them.
2: Adam, how do you think about iteration? Both the idea of like, the count of iteration it takes like to do the work as you kind of described. And then also in the context of this idea of like the work's not done yet. Right. How do you balance the mentality? Like my work's not done yet with other people need to see it.
0: You know, I have always been, and I won't hang this on Tom, but you know, I have not always believed in pure iteration for its own sake. You know, I don't, necessarily believe that your hundredth version of a thing is going to be better than your fifth. And especially as a business owner, you know, we're not pulling giant fees. We're not given lavish schedules. You know, we have an allotted amount of time to produce a deliverable. And within that framework, it's best for us to focus and try to find find something good that we believe in as quickly as we can and then do that thing the best we the best way we can do it. You know, we're not sort of uh, extravagant formalists, we're not making spectacle. We're sort of making, you know, connections to place in as straightforward a way as possible. And so for us, form making is usually a fairly straightforward exercise. We want to find the beauty and the proportion in these forms, but we're going to figure out what the site is about, go straight to that, those qualities, and then pull them into the building. And that to us is not necessarily a, a huge wrestle every time to get at just the right form, or get at just the right, you know, version of a curve, or whatever. Like that's not—it's not really how we work. So it does help us kind of get to the point more quickly and start thinking about details and materiality more quickly, and start thinking about, you know, the way light moves through a space um, immediately, rather than you know have to worry about the hundredth iteration being the perfect form. You know, if the building never gets done. We've failed, and we have deadlines, and we have milestones, and we have things to meet in a certain amount of time and for a certain amount of money. So, you know, we're pretty frank about
1: that. There's a, that that kind of brings to mind for me this question of like process in the concept phase. I think back a lot to I forgot the who wrote it, but there's a reading about uh, OMA and their process for design, which they called they rationalize as like brute force, right? They they try to get to that form just through like having an army of people create as many high resolution versions of like a, some sort of concept as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but what I'm hearing from what you're saying, it's like a lot of it comes from, it's like the the design strategy is figured out in a way where, okay, you're going to get into the site as quickly as possible, probably pull out some of the history from that site and like really try to tell a story that's going to resonate to the point where you can, Almost get it's like the the for you the the project is in the materiality the experience the 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 detail at the end of the day than it is about the uh, do we have is it intellectualized right on a different right right?
0: yeah right and I would say that we do not intellectualize the work very much certain projects have different parameters if you're working in the middle of a city um, it's totally different than working in the middle of the woods depending on the woods but you know most of the most of the work that we do is more about the experience of that place and less about, you know, some other layers that a lot of people are really good at and, and can do better than we can maybe. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of more about providing or connecting to an experience and then let it, trying to get the architecture out of the way. You know, a lot of the work that we did at Tom's that I did at Tom's was art museum space, gallery space, where reduction of, of distraction was everything and allowing the light and the art to play And that to be the experience of that space was everything. And so taking that, you know, out of the art museum, potentially into the experience of someone's residence or someone's office or someone's, um, you know, commercial project of some sort, that's really more important to us um, is what's the experience like, which is, you know, again, why the form making is not um, radical or extravagant or complex because we're sort of trying to get the building out of the way of the place. And sort of the same with details. Um, you know, Materiality for us grounds a project to its place um, and gives you another sense of sort of richness of what we do as builders. But yeah, there's not a huge intellectual component to our work. And in some ways that helps us be efficient also because we're not wrestling with a lot of those demons. It's just not what we're trying to do. And so, you know, I love I love that people do that, and I love that there are architects who take that take our work to a different level. But like I said, I'm I'm not sure we we are very good at that, and I'm not sure that it's of interest to us um, within our tiny space in the world of architecture uh, and the you know the 40 projects we hope to build by the time we die. You know,
2: we're not good at that. We're not going to do the thing we're not good at. Um, so Adam, keep- I think that it, I think that a a 15 year tenure as a staff member is a success of leadership in terms of retention. And I'm curious, how do you, how do you think about leadership in your office and the career paths of your architects and the design culture and the office culture that you establish and foster?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's really interesting when, when I was at Tom's and I was doing, I was involved in a lot of the hiring Because I enjoyed it and I really enjoyed that place and I believed in that group of people and I believed in Tom. And really loved bringing people in that, you know, could be of a like mind, and could be easy to work with and could be, you know, generous and hospitable and sociable in the ways that Tom was and in the way that a lot of my teammates were. I enjoyed bringing in people like that to that room. I now do the same thing. You know, it's it's just great to be very talented, but I only want to work with people that I like. And the same is true of, you know, the partners and the same is true of the people that we have in the room now. They're all immensely talented, amazing architects, but we really like them all. And in a lot of cases, you know, they were friends before they worked with us. So it's a big deal that we have this kind of uh, culture of openness. You know, we also try not to be tyrannical in the time it takes to do the work. We try to manage things such that, you know, everyone isn't killing themselves all the time. That doesn't always work. But, you know the leadership component of that is can you believe in the work we're doing do you enjoy these people do you want to support your coworkers and you know in our case do our team does our team want to support us and are we able to support them in as good a way as possible as a small office our big challenge actually is you know we now have people who have been in the office for you know 4 or 5 years some of them we need to provide them growth opportunities No one wants to really do the same thing over and over for their whole career. So it is really important to us that we keep kind of refreshing um, everyone's experience and providing everyone with something bigger and better and or, you know, more interesting or more complex or whatever it is. We want everyone to be whole architects, see buildings built, get in the reps to sort of understand, you know, how how does a drawing set translate to a building and how do you then translate that back to the next drawing set? That takes time and it takes work and it takes projects. And so, you know, we say all the time that everyone, even though we do interior design, we do architecture, we do, um, you know, things that we would consider design work projects, design projects, we still want everyone to know how to be a whole architect. And so that takes time and we want people to be around for as long as they would like to be around. But for us, that means, you know, continually bringing everyone new challenges. And we're very conscientious about our role in that process. We can't just sort of sit back and, and, you know, keep doing houses forever. We love the houses and we will do them forever, but it's not the only path. And so we've made a, we have made a concerted effort to sort of remain in a growth mode, at least, you know, for now.
1: The, as part of that, that kind of growth path for your employees, it also, hints to bringing in ver- various types of work as well, right? It's kind of like the upstream of that is being able to bring different types of work. And so, um, so- someone did ask in the Q&A, and this is this is something a, a topic that's very near and dear to Monograph, because we see, you know, the role of a business director, office manager, office ad, like uh, all the kind of operational side that isn't is typically maybe overlooked in a smaller office or not as like held in high regard in different ways, right? Culturally, just very different uh, across the board. But architecture firm made a very conscious decision to hire a business director early on out of a team of, I think, 10 to 15 people, right? You have this kind of pivotal role. Um, what, When was that decision made? How did that, imp- what was the kind of before and after of, of bringing that person on? And yeah, I'd love to know more about, about that.
0: Stephen Drake, who is our um, sort of business director, Danny is friends with him for a very long time. They worked together at Danny's previous office in Richmond. Um, he's not an architect. He is a, a, a PR and, and has sort of made himself into a, into a business consultant in a variety of ways. But, you know, at first for a small office, it's like, how do we get paid? How do we do invoicing? How do we, you know, set up this, our own sort of internal financial structure? So he did that for us and he did a really great job of it. That was the easy part. The hard part is now, how do we maintain, you know, obviously the financial side of the business? How do we do smart things? How do we try to, um, you know, invest where we can and understand uh, the financial ramification of our choices? But now we've sort of, you know, we have turned that into more of a business development and a marketing and a strategy position. Like I said, once the sort of structure of invoicing and billing and and stuff kind of had itself set up, he was then able to focus on other parts of the business and the strategy part and the growth part. And he's good at it because he's not an architect. And so he helps us see both the business and the way we, you know, sort of deal internally with our team and deal externally with, you know, other service providers to us, you know, our tax attorney or our accountant or whatever it is that we need to bring in. He's really great at that interface of the the office as an entity and these other people that we need to serve and have on our team. And so he comes at it with the, with like you guys are the architects and you're good at it, do it. I want to support the structure of the business and I'm better at that. So I'm going to do that. So, you know, it's kind of a, it's a great, it's been great for us. It's, It's taken a lot of the burden of those things, which aren't, Project management aren't hiring, aren't client relations, aren't, um, you know, direct design out of our, out of our world, you know, not completely ever as owners, but, but in a pretty good way.
1: With the nature of the, of the practice being, you know, where, where a lot of people get to work, you know, people in in Brooklyn get to work on products in Virginia and and it's like very intermixed and, and mingled. It seems like there's. Can you walk us a little bit through like, what, what is the, the organizational structure look like from a, like a sort of like a transparency perspective, like how much, how much does the team, is there like a, a kind of general awareness about where the company's always at across the, the company? Like what, what has there been any kind of influence from the business director on helping to impact that? I'm, I'm curious, like
0: how that, that shakes out. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's funny when, when, when you can all be in the same room and most offices these days of a certain size are in one room and it's open and you hear all the conversations and you, you know, you understand. I mean, that's how it was for me at Tom's. You know, I heard Tom talking to clients, I heard project managers talking to contractors, I heard as a young architect, heard all of those conversations happening in the same room and it was amazing. And you did always know what was going on. And if you you know popped your head up and didn't have your headphones on, you could really hear the entire business happening. You know, in the way that I, you know, we would now listen to a podcast to learn about stuff. It was all happening right there in the same room. We weren't that far away from each other. So it was all there. And if you were paying attention to it, you could pick up on every single aspect of the business, maybe not necessarily the finances in every single regard, but, you know, you could learn a lot about how the room works. It's obviously harder for us in some ways to do that across two offices. It's been almost impossible to do that um, in the past year in a satisfactory way. But, you know, we have. A weekly meeting with everyone involved and everyone talks about their projects and what they need and you know how we're going to sort of move through these things a lot of our teams are just one person managing and producing so being able to check in with everyone at that one meeting to sort of let everyone know where we are on schedule you know what are we doing how's the client feeling what's the thing sort of look like you know it's not a presentation but it's it's a it's a conversation that everyone can be involved in and and we take that really seriously and then we have you know work presentations from time to time. If something is at a good spot, um, we'll do a happy hour and talk about you know what's what's good about it. Or if someone is you know having trouble with something, we like to use that same moment to kind of open up the floor and get ideas uh, from the whole team. But but you know like I said, when it's it's not it's no longer the ideal structure to have everyone know everything all the time because we're just not we're no longer built that way. And I think the, the the work from home aspect has really put a, a dent in that to a certain degree but it is really important to us you know we as we have business development endeavors you know everyone tends to know about that as as we need things to sort of support those conversations with prospective clients you know we're reaching out within the room to obviously help that help that process along so i think we're very open about how we try to grow the office and how we try to move it in, in a certain direction to the whole team. And I think that matters. Um, and, you know, like I said, we want them all to be really good at this too. And the only way you can know what, what you're going to do next is to sort of see it and hear it and, and hopefully start to internalize some of it before you start doing it. That's
1: awesome. Yeah. We're, we're big proponents of that kind of autonomy being given to the staff to be able to, Learn soup to nuts the process of putting a product together because ultimately, you know, you're you're almost capped by your ability to grow leaders, right? As, as a company, mm-hmm. and so as opposed to trying to find people to come in outside, who you know can change the culture or just have a different you know uh, can slow things down or whatever. Being able to grow those leaders out of your own team is is powerful.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So we we got over sixteen. 16- Questions from the audience, and um, I thought it might be interesting to ask one about how you onboard contractors, consultants, um, working partners for high rigor projects. They also added signs that the consultant or contractor won't be able to deliver at a desired level of tolerance, and just in general, like how you how you work with how you find working partners that can operate in a way that's more in sync with how the firm. Wants to do projects.
0: You know that's it's it's challenging each time out. And as a young office, we don't have a lot of very long relationships developed. You know where it's the person or the group we've been working with for twenty years, and they know us, and we know them, and we know the thing can that can sort of proceed at pace without much complication. It's also not the case that every single relationship works out. So I wouldn't say that we have that method defined. Um, but a lot of what we try to do both on the consultant and the contractor side is just, you know, set up the relationship as soon as possible and in as positive a way um, as we can, you know, it is really about forming a team and, you know, being kind of open. Here are maybe the moments where we might not do the thing exactly the way you are used to doing it um, or seeing it. And there are going to be moments where you're going to do a thing that's a little bit different than the way we want or expect. And how can we kind of meet somewhere in the middle to do the project well you know, we don't have giant consultant teams on a lot of our jobs. So it's not necessarily that, you know, we're going to Up or we're going to two by four every time we do a thing. So, you know, we have to sort of, in a lot of cases, work with someone local and we have to sort of dig through, you know, whoever it is that we're working with and for and do some sort of internal vetting, you know, look at the portfolio, talk to the people. We do a lot of referencing to try to figure folks out. And then, you know, there's a lot of it's not hand holding, it's sort of, you know, teamwork in the field, particularly on the contractor side. You know, we're there all the time, we're in the space all the time, we're constantly working through. And we want, we want those guys to know that we're gonna support the process, you know, with more drawings or with another phone call or with whatever it is. Like we want to, we want to make sure that the doors are open and it's an actually like kind of a, a quality relationship before we start working. That, you know, we've sort of talked about that within the office, but it's just as important outside of the office. And it's how we, you know, teach clients to find the right contractor for themselves. You know, that's a relationship that's almost more important for them than it is for us in some ways. And so we sort of build the whole thing on, you know, quality relationships. And do we feel like we can work with these folks, whether or not they've done, you know, the Taj Mahal project before? Do we think we can all get there together? And some of that's going to be us managing and drawing. And some of that's going to be them, you know, maybe going beyond. But, you know, I feel like a lot of earnest people are capable of a lot. Um, and if you sort of make the relationship
2: sort of frank and open, you know, we tend to get there more often than not. Really interesting. I'm going to pull another one from the audience. So um, someone asked, what What are some tips for an architect wanting to move into a project role? So maybe more of an early, earlier career, trying to find one's way Upwards, maybe they're fighting against leadership. In, in a sense, they feel that way, or maybe maybe there's some initiative that they need to take. I
0: mean, you put the nail on it, or you put the head on it. Taking initiative and trying to show that you are curious and want to do something beyond the thing you just did is really, you know, maybe the most important thing for a person within an office to try to grow. Opportunities aren't always necessarily offered. And to be honest, now, as, as an owner, I don't always have the lay of the land exactly to know that like this person needs this thing and I need to provide them this thing at this particular moment. So, you know, the sort of internalizing of your own challenge and your own kind of curiosity to grow is really important. And even if you haven't done the thing and even if you're, you know, you're not good at it, if someone comes to, to me and says, hey... I would love to try this. I would love to do that thing. I saw these guys do it, or, you know, I've been very curious about this particular method. You know, can I bring that? Can I try this? Like, we will always support that. And I think every office would, you know, you want to make sure that you're not kind of burning yourself up or out in the process. You know, you don't want to kill yourself and you don't want to let someone else who's not us, you don't want to let yourself be taken advantage of to in a certain way. You don't want to, you know, don't lay it out. Don't work all your weekends for that. But I think it's really important to just, you know, remain curious and remain sort of open to something. And if something is offered to you, you take it, even if it's kind of lame and, you know, you don't think it's that interesting, it probably will make you a better architect. It'll definitely make you a better colleague. It'll definitely make you a better employee. And so be open to, you know, the things that don't seem like project work. You know, that was was always sort of my approach to being in someone else's office is how am I going to know? to do all of these other things if I never get the chance to do them. And I'm not necessarily going to get offered that chance every time. So, you know, be expansive, think about more than, than the design process, think about more than the project. And what would that mean in your particular spot? It, you know, it's different for every office, different for a corporate office versus, you know, a smaller office like ours, but you can
2: always be curious and you can always be kind of expansive in your own thinking. We have another question. You've worked in a range of places from New York to the James River. Do you find it easier to work on projects in smaller places like Charlottesville or rather than Brooklyn?
0: It's funny. It's not. Every place is different and the challenges are different. And so, you know, when we did the museum of ice cream, for instance, we were working with one of the best contractors in the whole city and, you know, and sort of hands down, just an amazing builder that made certain things really easy for us. Not easy, but. know, it it alleviated a lot of the challenge that we might otherwise have with uh, less experienced or, you know, or, you know, someone who's never built a modern project, for instance, um, in a more rural site. So, you know, to me, it's different every time. Obviously, in the city, you tend to do a certain kind of project because you don't build a lot of ground up, you don't build, you're not going to build a house made of wood in the middle of the city. There are just there are differences to the project type that also kind of change the balance on ease versus difficulty. So I'm not sure there's I'm not sure there's a real difference. I think in our in our experience as having different places, the stakes can be different. Like the stakes are really high in New York City, everything's really expensive. We have tons more competition here, obviously. So getting into the project and sometimes you know getting the thing done, the barriers are different and the parameters for actually doing the work can be different. So we find that we, it's easier to build in Virginia, but we don't necessarily get the same product and we don't necessarily get the same approach to the work from the whole team, including the clients. You know, it's just different, it's a different environment and the challenges are just different.
2: By I, I want to talk a little bit about how you structure your teams at architecture firms. So is it that all the partners actually are part of every project? And how might you think about the sort of levels in your firm? like? whether it be junior, then project managers, and then partners or something else? And, and how many people are sort of attached to a project long-term?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, we, so we've been sort of lucky in some ways that, you know, we sort of brought in a group of people, um, you know, four or five years ago. And all of those people were more or less the same level of experience. They've all grown within the office. Like I said, they tend to run their own projects and do most of the production on their own projects you know they're now all 10 year people roughly so they're real live architects with a ton of skill and really great talent we have sort of one junior person and we have kind of one one and a half to senior people in the us so there's not there's no pyramid and there's no real sort of tree yet there's kind of this great plateau of really talented architects you know part of our growth strategy is to build a little bit of that pyramid under some of these folks and provide you know management opportunities again you know as we as we grow we want to provide opportunities to for, for our team to, you know, get better, run run bigger jobs, uh, you know, manage teams of people. To date, you know, we've really only done a couple projects that had teams that were bigger than two people. You know, the Quirk Hotel in Charlottesville, which was, you know, 100,000 square feet, new build and all the interiors. That was, you know, a three or four person team for the duration but a lot of our projects are kind of one to one and a half people for the life of those projects, and that's even some of the commercial work and some of the um, some of the larger scale things that we've started to do now. Because those people are really skilled now, they can manage a bigger project even um, you know without a ton of team built around them. So yeah, it, it, we're we're probably not uh, structurally built um, in a super typical way yet. You know that's part of our growth agenda as well as to try to kind of normalize the the tiers um, and give a clearer path from kind of, you know, first or second year people out of school
2: to, you know, 10 or 15 year people in the office. You know, one topic that has come up a lot in our conversations with other architects is recently has been this idea of like recurring clients or like longer term client relations. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience at architecture firm with clients. We've already talked about contractors, you know, that working partner, and then your internal team. But what's your approach to the client experience?
0: You know, it's different for every project. You know, something we we sort of touched on previously. We've also been very lucky to not have the same project over and over. You know, we've done a we've done a handful of houses. We've done a few apartments in the city. Those are are a bit of a um, bit of repeats on the, on the typology, but, you know, we've done one large hotel, the whole building we've done one pretty significant reuse, uh, office space for a creative company. We've done, you know, one university project, we've done one commercial interior on a residential scale. We're doing one, you know, for the first time, we're doing a a big multifamily project as a standalone, you know, built thing. So, and we've done one, you know, museum of ice cream, which. only tend to do one of those in your life. But, but so we have sort of an array of firsts without necessarily the seconds of any of those things yet. So in some ways, you know, I don't even know what to tell you. It's like we're sort of like each one of those processes is a little bit different. Each one of those clients is totally different. The things they want from us are completely different. You know, I think it's probably easier to draw comparisons between the, the residential clients. Lucky for us, they're coming to us knowing that we do a certain thing. And so, we've a little bit gotten past the, the explanatory phase of a young office where we have to, you know, convince someone that what we're doing is worth doing or what we think is important is actually important. You know, people are now seeing a body of work and understanding what that represents. So, we're at least not doing that anymore. And to a degree, you know, all our clients are really interesting people who want to do interesting architecture. So, the challenge of that part is, is going away. Everyone's fee is different. Everyone's expectation of the the project process is different. A lot of people's understanding of the process is different. So the way we educate, which is actually a pretentious word, and I hate to use it, the way that we sort of describe our process to people has to adjust to who those people are. And so we have to be able to sort of bring them through the process in a clear way. And usually that's different. Sometimes it means the contract language is different even because, you know, a big... AIA contract and all of its exclusions makes it sound like we're not doing anything sometimes. (laughs) And so we have to sort of bring people along um, on the process who are themselves in different places in their understanding of of what it is architects do. So kind of is different every time. But like I said, the the sort of cultural and design aspect of the clients who are now approaching us is is clearer. And you know, we do, you know, exit interviews, we do um, you know, try to get information from clients when our projects are over. We do sort of close out work to make sure that, you know, if something didn't go well, we're able to address it. And if something went well, we know why. And so we're able to sort of apply that to the next project and hopefully keep, you know, lifelong clients. I know that's a big factor in a lot of people's businesses is sort of repeat client model. And we definitely, you know, aim to aim to create good relationships with everyone that we're working with and hope that keeps going and is, is beneficial to the, to the business.
1: I, I want to just also recognize um, for the audience uh, that's here with us, just to let them know that we're almost at the top of the hour, but I do want to offer them opportunity to ask more questions just because it might not be super clear that it's a good time to to send some questions now. Yeah, Adam, th- thank you for that. Um, we've talked to a lot of different architects too. Like I really like the, the call out on the contract language because that's a big uh, – it, it's very interesting how you might have this prescribed document right from the AIA – it's like, it's sort of written devoid of who the audience is, who's mm-hmm. going to receive it. Mm-hmm. So like there really is a, a contract that should be designed for residential clients who will get scared if they see a, you know, 10 page dot contract. It's like, what am I signing here? Mm-hmm. Right. And who might not have the wherewithal or maybe not might have a legal team to be looking over the, you know, parsing through the contract. Um, and, But I think that that recognition of who your audience is one that we, we, you know, for, for those followers of Monograph, we write a lot about in our newsletter and in our blog about thinking about who, who is your who is your client, how do they think, what's the, the makeup of, like, what are their objectives and what are they trying to accomplish in tailoring that in order to also get repeat work? Because sure. there's likely very similar types of clients that have those, let's say that worldview or those attitudes that that, that you would want to be going after.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, just today in our kind of, you know, business partner meeting, we had this exact conversation about because we do all sorts of different work in different typologies for different clients, you know, a significant developer has a whole legal team and they've been doing contracts, you know, 10 a day forever. They're prepared to eat our lunch and they're prepared to, you know, to to have a better (laughs) handle on what language is in that contract than we do. Uh, We use the same contract language for, you know, someone who wants to do a very small project It has nothing to do with any of those, you know, difficulties or complexities or, you know, or attitudes toward uh, the relationship. And so, you know, we do want to standardize. We do need to make sure we're not on the hook for work that we're not, you know, prepared to do. We need to make sure that the exclusions are somehow expressed and that we're not um, kind of hanging ourselves out to dry on the contract. But it is a different beast, you know, someone doing a, you know, a million dollar house or a half a million dollar project is not at all aware or concerned or interested in some of the same things that, you know, a, you know, billion dollar developer is going to come to uh, a project with. So we're learning that as a as a young office, you know, with sort of growth potential we're doing the bigger work. We need those significant contracts. We need good language to protect ourselves, but we have to know when to deploy it and when to sort of soften it, I guess is the, is the answer.
2: We had a pretty touching question, uh, which was, what's the most rewarding, unexpected opportunity that you've had professionally Or And also, in what ways has that impacted the culture of your current practice?
0: You know, it's sort of, the fact that I, you know, in 2003 when we were in a recession and having come from Atlanta, not being a New Yorker, not being, uh, you know, coming from the the same schools that everyone else is coming from generally, being able to find my way through my own tiny network to Tom and to Craig Reeves and to Steve Dayton and to these people that hired me there at Tom's, I don't know how I would say that that's not the most significant thing that's ever happened to me as an architect. Just being in that office and being able to sort of you know, soak up that work and that process and, you know, sort of who those folks were and what they were able to teach me about architecture. You know, for me as a, as an architect at that moment, I saw Tom's work and, you know, had a huge affinity for it. Man, that's amazing. I've never seen that before. How can I do that? How can I be a part of that? And it was in, like I said, in in a time when no one was hiring and, and nothing was, I couldn't even get interviews. So there's no doubt that that's the most important thing that ever happened to me as an architect. And for us, you know, that, that culture, the cultural connection has been huge because I want to be helping our team. I want to be making connections in a similar way. You know, I stay involved with my schools to try to provide opportunities to people that, you know, might not otherwise have them. So, you know, that's probably the key. Obviously, being at Tom's, being able to manage significant projects, being offered that opportunity, those were a big deal, but I sort of grew into them sort of naturally. I will always be thankful that Tom gave me those opportunities and and kept me around as long as he did. But, you know, the fact that he took the flyer in the first place was really the most important, most important thing that's ever happened to me. And I can draw, you know, every, every ounce of my experience now, all the way back to that It all. That was the thing. And I was lucky to be there as long as I was um, because it did make me, you know, kind of who I am as an architect.
1: That's great. Thanks for sharing, Adam. So I do recognize it's the top of the hour. So, I just kind of want to wrap things up a little bit. I want to thank you, Adam, for joining us and sharing your your thinking around the practice and how um, you've been able to build it to date. Uh, it's just it's really great to hear the the journey thus far, but also some of the open questions that are still seem to be open for the company and the team. Just want to recognize that 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 transparency is really important for the industry and as a whole, I think we don't hear it often too often though about these stories about the back of house in, in some way of like mm-hmm. how things are actually done. Um, and so, yeah, thank you so much for for taking the time to join. Yeah. And th- thanks so much, Chris too, for curating some of this conversation. It's been really great, uh, really great questions. Um, so I just want to take a a moment to uh, talk a little bit about our sponsors or (laughs) Chris and I both work at Monograph, so that's why I call them sponsors. Um, and, And then we can kind of wrap things up. So at Monograph, we're building the future of practice operations for architects and other design professionals. We make it easy for you and your team to track time and actually visualize how that time impacts budgets, schedules, staffing all in near real time, about as real time as you can input time into Monograph. With Monograph, you can even have your marketing team understand what, what the pipeline looks like. You can have principal see what forecasting looks like, so you know whether you need to bring in some more projects by August or not. Basically, Monograph helps you make helps you and your team make decisions. You can sign up today at Monograph for, for free for 10 days and try us out. Adam, thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
2: Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-size architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.